This evening, I want to start by considering the question, how can we build our Christian confidence? How can we gain more confidence as Christians? Now, I don't mean uh, be more assertive in the office. That's not the sort of confidence I'm talking about. I mean more the confidence of how can we be confident that we are one of God's people? How can we be confident that we belong to Christ? How can we escape that exhausting work of constantly trying to put on our best face to look acceptable to ourselves and to other believers? How can we avoid worrying that one day somebody might just find out what sort of a person I really am like deep down? How can we avoid falling into despair and serious doubt when we look at our own sin and see our own failings? And ultimately, how can we really be confident that we are forgiven? How can we be confident that eternal life is ours and that it is secure? Now, one of the, the key questions that, that governs this issue of confidence in the Christian life is the question of how we respond to our sin. What are we doing with the problem of our sin? How are we dealing with it? How are we tackling it? How are we responding to it? And it's that issue that John deals with in the verses that we're looking at today. 1 John, chapter 1, verse 8 to 10. Now, you might remember from last week that in this short section of the letter, John is addressing three claims that false teachers seemed to be making. Last week, we saw the claim that the false teachers claimed to have fellowship with God, yet they walked in darkness. And John said, this is uh, total, totally false, and here's a better alternative. And this week, we're going to consider the next two claims uh, that were arising in the church and John's um, response to them and the better alternative that comes with them. This is the error that was going around. Verse eight, if we claim to be without sin, it seems that there are some who are claiming to be without sin. And then again in verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned. Some claim to be without sin, some claim we have not sinned. Now, at first glance, they're very similar statements. Uh, Did John really need to repeat them and put them as two separate claims? What's the difference? What's going on here? Uh, Well, it's likely that the false teachers in the first century there in that church that John was writing to held a view of humanity that almost entirely separated the physical and the spiritual aspects of our being. And they claimed that because God is spiritual, The only important thing for a person is that our spirits are right with him. And they separated to such an extent the spirits from our physical bodies that they then would say, actually, what you do with your bodies doesn't really affect your spirit at all. And therefore, what you do with your bodies cannot affect your relationship with God. And so they would say, look, even if I'm doing sinful things, even if I'm doing things that are against God's law, well, that's not affecting my spirit. My spirit is still right with God. I've still got this fellowship with God. And so I am without sin. The power of sin, the influence of sin, the effects of sin have no influence on who I am really and my relationship with God. That's the first claim. We are without sin. But then it seems like some would go even further and some would say, well, we have not sinned. 
actually those things that you've seen us doing that you are calling sin, well, we wouldn't agree, actually. We don't think they are sin. We think they were just guidelines or or for another time. But now we know better. I wonder then if you've heard anything similar to either of these two claims today. Let me give you some examples of where I think they crop up quite regularly. One is, what would people say to you if you asked your friends, neighbours, colleagues, whoever, if they are a good person? You might hear a response along these lines. They might say, well, am I a good person? You know, I've, I've made a few mistakes in my time, told one or two lies or, you know, got worked up about things in the past. But, you know, at heart, I try to do what's right. Yeah, I think deep down, I'm a good person. You hear in their response the similar sort of arguments to these false teachers. Yes, there are outward things that we do that are not so good, but deep down inside, I'm a good person. You might also think of um, the way people view criminals today or criminality. What is it that causes a person to do certain criminal things? What is it that causes a person to do any wrong thing, even if it's not necessarily criminal? And many today would argue that It's not the person themselves that is wrong. It's just the result of poor education or a bad upbringing or difficult circumstances that they were surrounded by. Deep down, they're a good person and they want to do the right thing, but they're just a result of circumstance. Sin as as an inherent influence just doesn't come into the equation at all. There can be no admission that people are wicked and that we do wrong at times. And then with relation to the second claim, of course, there is the ongoing effort to entirely rewrite the standard of ethics, to totally redefine what is right and what is wrong. And of course, sexual ethics is the obvious example here, but there are other examples as well. You know, it's it's no sin anymore to bear false witness against your neighbour. Not if you're doing it on Twitter and not if you're doing it for a political cause. Say what you like about them. It is no sin today to steal, to uh, falsify your timesheet, for example, to put things through the self-checkout without scanning it first. Because if you're stealing from a big corporation that gets massive profits, it's, it's not really stealing at all. And it's not really lying if you have to lie to do it. These claims that John is dealing with are not just first century claims. They are 21st century claims. We have not sinned. And we have no sin. But now I want to bring the text right down into your lives, into our lives. Because it's my opinion that that these claims are not just claims that are made by false teachers and atheists and those of other religions outside the church. I think these claims are ones that we can often make for ourselves. Now, of course, not in as many words. We wouldn't say explicitly, I have not sinned. We dare not. I hope as Christians we know how serious that the problem of sin is. And part of our services each week is a confession of sin and a thanks for uh, the forgiveness we have of sin. But sometimes don't our actions betray that really we are still thinking along these lines that the false teachers were, were claiming? We still treat ourselves as though we have no sin. When my view of sin in life is narrowed down to really consist of just one or two 
particular besetting sins. When my confessions in prayer are so often just dealing with the same sins over and over, one or two topics that get picked up time and time again. Lust or, or greed or, or laziness or, uh, or a sharp tongue or whatever it might be for you. It can be easy to reduce our sinfulness to just one or two particular issues that, yes, pop up every few days, that, yes, we seem to be unable to get rid of. But for those days where we do, either by luck or judgment, manage to avoid those sins, we begin to feel quite smug with ourselves. We begin to feel like we're, we're really taking huge strides in holiness on those days. We've really made big steps against sin, that we're really much better than we ever were. If we can just deal with those one or two little blemishes, then really we're quite good people deep down. We conveniently ignore the fact that unbelief is sin. And that the vast majority of of, uh, many actions of, of each of our days stem from our Unbelief, our ignorance, our uh, disregard for God, our creator. We conveniently brush aside the importance of those lesser sins that we might know of. Discontentment, anxiety. And we persuade ourselves that because our discontentment is not as uh, severe and obvious as it is in some other people's lives, well, I'm not really coveting then, am I? If I'm just a little bit discontent, actually, isn't it a virtuous thing to want better for myself? We justify ourselves. And the sin that we ought to confess and recognize, we push to the side. It's not really affecting me, we convince ourselves. We don't give a second thought, for example, to the use of our money, so long as it's in line with what other Christians around us are doing. Surely that is what makes me okay. If I keep in step, if I stay respectable. And yes, we would never, we would never dare say, I have no sin. And we would never dare say, I have not sinned. But we might consider that if we could avoid one or two particular sins for a while, then we might be able to say, I've not sinned today. Or I've not sinned for a few hours. You see, the false teachers in this church were over-spiritualizing. Uh, and they were separating the physical from the, the spiritual. Such that the physical eventually had no consequence on the spiritual. But perhaps our temptation can be the reverse. We overemphasize the physical And suggest that if I can just control these one or two actions that I do, if I can just control these one or two behaviours that I can spot and pinpoint in my life, then perhaps the problem of sin will be dealt with. The error that was there in the first century is here in the 21st century. Not just out there in the world, but it has a tendency to show itself even in our lives. And what's the result of this way of thinking? Well, the result, John says, is, well, there's three things. Verse nine, uh, sorry, verse eight. 
we deceive ourselves. And secondly, the truth is not in us. Thirdly, verse 10, we make God out to be a liar. And his word has no place in our lives. That's the same phrase as the truth is not in us. So if we have this way of thinking, we deceive ourselves, we make God out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. There are severe implications of not having his word in us. It was the same John who wrote the gospel that described Jesus as the word and as the truth that wrote this letter. And so to not have that word and that truth in us shows us how close we are to this fellowship with God that John dealt with in uh, verses 5 to 7. Couple that with making God out to be a liar. And you can see how far we've now come from that same fellowship. But I want to focus this evening on the fact that our our tendency to deny our own sinfulness is to deceive ourselves. That's the damage it does. It deceives you. And it's not the sort of deception that results in blissful ignorance. You know, there are some today who claim that the earth is flat, that that the, the idea that the earth is a globe is a, is a deception. And you might say that those conspirators, um, if that's the right word for them, they are deceiving themselves. But their deception is largely harmless. It has no great effect on their lives. But to deny our own sinfulness is no harmless ignorance like that. To deny our own sinfulness is of utmost importance and it has severe consequences. To deny our own sinfulness can lead directly to that lack of Christian confidence that I spoke about earlier. Denying our sinfulness can lead to despair about what sinfulness there is. As long as a cancer remains as an isolated lump on the surface of the organ, there is every hope that the doctor can remove it. As long as a derelict building remains structurally sound, then all of the dirt and all of the detritus and all of the mould that's growing on the outside and all of the, the weeds that are growing up through the paving slabs can all be removed and the building renovated back to its, its intended use. As long as these things are just on the surface and as long as we view our sin as just being a minor blemish on the outward appearance, a minor hiccup in our behaviours, then we feed ourselves the lie, the deception, that there is every hope that we can defeat those sins, that we can rub them out, that we can modify our behaviour to erase them. We just have to try a bit harder. We just have to work for a bit longer. We just have to change our circumstance so we're not faced with the same temptation and we will be able to completely be free of those sins that have for so long dogged us. A low and biblically inadequate view of sin feeds us the lie that we can try and save ourselves, that we can earn God's favour by our own merit. And then reality hits us in the face. Because we sin again. 
uh, or a, a new situation crops up and a, and a new sin comes into our life that we weren't prepared for. Or perhaps in a lucid moment, we, we stop and take stock of just how, it, how pervasive our sin really is, just how deeply runs, how deeply it runs into every motive of our heart and every action of every day. That our sin is not just the positive actions that we do, but it's also our negligence, our ignorance, the things that we're unable to do. That sin has had hold of us from the day of our conception and our birth. It doesn't just spring up when we're tempted towards anger or to lust or some other sin. When the rich man came to Jesus, you can imagine him at one point in the conversation getting overjoyed. I've kept all the commandments, he said to Jesus. What must I do to be saved? There's one thing you've got left to do, Jesus said. Joy of joys. Can you imagine if there was only one more thing left for you to do to secure your salvation? And yet the man went away despairing. Because he realized that he was unable to do that one thing asked of him. When we have a low view of sin, we convince ourselves that there's just one or two more little things to do before you can be sure. Only then to realize in despair that we're not strong enough to do them. We're not strong enough to rid ourselves of those sins. Whether you are a Christian or not, you need to. the first thing you need to realize if you're going to become a Christian, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, is that you cannot fix your own problem of sin. You can't compensate for it by doing lots of other good things. You can't cover it up. You can't deny it and hide it by living two separate lives. And as long as you try to do it, then you're deceiving yourself. You're deceiving yourself to your own harm. So what's the solution? John's alternative is simple. Verse 9, if, on the other hand, if we confess our sins, John's solution is to confess. It's funny, isn't it? If you'd read the verses from last week about John speaking about those who claim to know God yet walk in darkness, you might have expected John's remedy to be something along the lines of, you need to stop sinning. You need to cut sin out of your life. But actually, that's not John's remedy. It's not that he wants us to carry on sinning. He does want us to stop sinning, and he makes that explicitly clear in chapter 2, verse 1. I write this so that you will not sin. But his solution isn't by just simply trying harder or trying to get better. The solution that he gives is confess. Admit your own weakness. Own up to your own guilt. Although it is a practical and a helpful thing to spend time in confession detailing specific ways that we have sinned, specific ways that we need God's grace and help to fight those sins, I hope that if you if you understand this biblical view of sin, that it that it's really rooted deep down in our hearts, that it affects our our every moment then a confession that includes a specific detailing of every sin is 
basically impossible. And so when the Bible uses this word confession, it can also mean, uh, it can also carry a sense of uh, agreeing with. In fact, the word very literally translated, over literally translated, means uh, to say the same thing as. So John's saying our response is to accept God's description of our situation. Accept the biblical analysis. Accept that you are a sinner. Accept that sin does have hold of you. Accept that you do need rescuing from it. Accept that it's a bigger problem than you can deal with yourself. Confess the truth. See that the biblical description of your problem of sin is right. And what's the result of this solution? Instead of being plunged into despair, like we might be if we tried to deny it, like we might be if we tried to cover it up only later to find out that we'd fallen again. Instead of being plunged into despair, we find the solution, uh, the, the result of this confession is that we receive forgiveness and cleansing. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Every sin, every sinful motive, uh, every evil thought, every wicked deed, every time that we've acted out of ignorance, every time that we've lived our lives without uh, respect or recognition towards God, our Creator, every time that we've failed to to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. Every time that we fail to love our neighbour as ourself. Every time. Whether we recognise that time or not. Every time is forgiven. And every instance is purified. As far as the east is from the west. That's how far he removes our sin from us. Why would God do that for us? Why would God treat us in such a way? Well, the first answer is not because of who you are. Not because of the sincerity of your confession. That's not why he does it. It's not because you've tried hard enough for yourself at defeating sin. That's not why he does it. It's not because you've done some other good things alongside your sin to to warrant this forgiveness. That's not why he forgives. John says in verse 9, he forgives because he is faithful and just. In other words, he is faithful and fair. Faithful and fair to who? Certainly not to you in the first instance. Certainly not to me. If it was fair to me, I would be under condemnation. I would be suffering judgment, punishment for the sins that I've committed. Fair to who? Well, that's why we read on into chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. They're pointing us towards the answer. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The one who had no sin of his own. The one who had, who never one, one moment had this despair about whether he was good enough for God or not. The one who'd never failed.
to live in perfect obedience to the law of God and live out the fullness of his righteousness. He stands in the courtroom of heaven making a defense for us, for you and me, the ones who confess our sins and trust in him. He stands in our defense. But don't misunderstand this defense. Sometimes you will hear teachers making a false caricature of that courtroom scene. They would claim, for example, that the the loving, kind, patient, gentle Jesus who's walked here on earth, who, who knows just how difficult it is to live without sin, he stands in heaven and pleads with the angry God of justice and asks that for just this moment, God would turn aside his anger so that we can be forgiven. The love of Jesus pleading with the justice of God. John's portrait couldn't be further from that. In fact, it's the very opposite. The defense that Jesus gives is not mitigating circumstances on your behalf. Jesus isn't defending saying, they'd had a very long day at work, you know. They'd they'd lived for a very long time struggling with this singleness. Uh, Look, their, their father never gave them a good example of how to deal with their anger. Look, they've not got that much money in the bank and it's hard to be generous with what they have. That's not how Jesus is defending you. Jesus defends you on the basis of verse two. He, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice. Jesus offers himself as the defense. He offers himself to the Father and says, I have taken the punishment. I have met the demands of your justice. I have paid the price. I have taken it from them. I have lived out their righteousness for them. And so rather than the love of Jesus pleading with the justice of God, in fact, you have the justice of the cross of Jesus pleading the love of God. Jesus makes a defense for you and I so that we might receive forgiveness and purification from the Father. It's a great gift. It's the gift that's offered to any. His his work of being the atoning sacrifice isn't just for a select few. It's not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Anyone who would turn to Christ can receive this gift. Anyone who would confess their sin, their own weakness, can receive it. But you perhaps won't. Not if you won't confess, at least. Not if you won't accept that your sin is a bigger issue than you are able to deal with. Not unless you accept that your good deeds cannot outweigh, cannot even begin to replace your sinful acts. Not unless you see that your sin runs far deeper than just one or two unkind or unhelpful words once or twice a week. But if you confess your sin, if you do see just how deeply that sin runs, If you do see your need of a saviour, then Jesus is willing to stand in your place and make a defence for you. 
a defense that is not based on your performance, but rather a defense that is based on his act. An act that was completed millennia ago, finished, sorted, done. And because that is the basis of your defense, your confidence as a Christian then is certain. It will not change. Just like you can't change history. The history is done. It's finished. It's secured. And so if you take hold of that act of history, if you take hold of the cross of Christ, if you, if you ask Jesus to be your defense in that heavenly courtroom, then your confidence that you belong to Christ, that you are forgiven, that you are washed clean of your sin, that you are no longer found guilty before that throne of judgment, that confidence is yours. Unshakable, unmovable, can't be taken from you, cannot be changed. A confidence that we can have as believers. John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. I'm going to leave a pause now in the service for us to spend some time in confession of sin. And I recommend that you use this time, whether you're a Christian or not. If you're not a Christian, why not use this time to confess your sin, perhaps for the first time, and ask Jesus to stand in that heavenly courtroom as your defender. And if you are a believer, I hope this message has reminded you of just how much Jesus has done on our behalf perhaps challenged you of the depth of your sin and the way it runs so deep, giving thanks that we're free from the mastery of sin, but confess your sin and ask for help to continue to put it to death, not by your own strength, but by the power of his spirit that works powerfully in us.